Hi, and welcome to And If Love Remains. I'm your host, Mike Levitt. What do you get when a priest, a scholar, and an actor walk into a bar? Well, not just a great joke, but you also get Michael Ward. Michael Ward is a Catholic priest and is senior is a senior research fellow at Blackfriars Hall, University of Oxford, and professor of apologetics at Houston Baptist University. He is author of the best-selling and award-winning Planet Narnia, The Seven Heavens and the Imaginations of C.S. Lewis. And most recently, he is the author of After Humanity, A Guide to C.S. Lewis's Abolition of Man. Uh, Today we're going to be talking to him about a new movie, uh, The Most Reluctant Convert, uh, the untold story of C.S. Lewis and his conversion. Um, I am excited and and most importantly he's a great friend of the program he's a good friend of mine um he's always been very generous with his time thank you so much for being on the program michael ward welcome to and if love remains my pleasure mike thank you for having me absolutely absolutely so i'll i want to jump well quick little background um talk to me a little bit about your acting career your 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 role as an actor i mean i mean most people think of you as a scholar as a professor um you know as as a great c.s lewis uh scholar and lecturer what tell me about your acting though yeah well i can't really claim to be an actor as such not not a professional actor i i've I've done a lot of amateur stuff over the years um as a student and and subsequently um I've I've been paid to be an extra, um, uh-huh. so I could be pro- called professional in that respect. Uh, but there's a big gulf between being an extra and being an actor. Um, I've only twice uh, or thrice been in in a role as an extra that r- required any acting as such. Uh huh. Um, but and, and I've, I've I've never been credited for any role. Until this new movie, uh, which we're going to talk about today, um, and so there, for the first time, I suppose I could I could at last be called a professional actor. <laughs> Hallelujah! That's yes. right. <laughs> it's That's only wonderful. taken fifty three years. Yeah. <laughs> well, you know, we're all, we're all late bloomers at something, I guess. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's wonderful. No, that that that's really great. So let's talk about this movie for for a minute. Tell tell me. Um, who who's behind this movie and, and and why was it made? Um it's Norman Stone is the director and he is uh, best known probably for another project related to CS Lewis. Norman Stone made the original BBC version of the Shadowlands story. Oh yes, that's um, a wonderful. Yeah. yeah. It, of course it became best known as a feature film made by Richard Attenborough with Anthony Hopkins and Deborah Winger. But before it was ever a feature film, Shadowlands was um, a stage play. And before that, it was a BBC TV film. And that oh. TV film was made by Norman Stone, and he, he, he had great success with it. He won a BAFTA for it, and um, it largely kick-started his career and, and certainly confirmed his interest in C.S. Lewis. Um, so it was Norman Stone, actually, who made the documentary about my book, Planet Narnia. Okay. Um, that was called The Narnia Code. I just happened to be introduced to Norman Stone um, when I was lecturing about Planet Narnia in New York. And um, 
almost casually, almost as a joke, I said to him, do you fancy making a documentary about my book? Because I knew of his Shadowlands film and right. was a great admirer of that. And and I was slightly taken aback when he said to me, uh, yeah, I, I could be interested. Why don't you write me a proposal? And so I pitched him a, a, a proposal and, and he then pitched it in turn to the BBC and the BBC said yes. And he managed to get some funding from various people and and it all happened amazingly easily. Um, and having made that connection with Norman Stone, then when he uh, took on the role as director of this new movie, The Most Reluctant Convert, and he knew that he was going to be in Oxford uh, filming it, um, and he knew that he needed someone to play C.S. Lewis's parish priest, um, he thought of me and he thought, this role is sufficiently small that it, even if Michael is rubbish in it, it, it won't ruin the movie too much. <laughs> uh, so he asked me if I wouldn't mind playing C.S. Lewis's vicar. And of course, um, having been um, an Anglican priest myself, and I'm now a Catholic priest, um, I, I, know, <laughs> I know how clergy perform. Um, right. Having done, as I say, a, a fair bit of work in films and TV dramas before as an extra, um, I was, uh, I felt I was up to it. And anyway, he thought I was, that was the main thing. And um, I had two days filming on this movie and it was two of the most fun days I've spent in my entire life. Oh, <laughs> wonderful. That sounds, that sounds like a lot of fun. Now, um, uh, clearly, I, I maybe not clearly. This the the filming was done uh, pre COVID, I guess. When when was it made, or when yeah, when was the filming done, and and what was that process like? Obviously, for you, is relatively short. But how long did you have to wait after filming to to get to this point? Well, the filming was done in September and October last year, um, so it was after the pandemic hit, um, but. It, in that brief window last autumn, um, most many of the of the most severe restrictions of the lockdown in Britain had had been lifted. Oh yeah, good. Uh, at any rate, sufficiently for us to do this filming. Right. Um, there was a lot of you know social distancing, and in between takes, we all had to put our masks on and and all the rest of it. Um, and there was no in, in these church scenes that I was involved in. Um, there was no, even though we were filming the singing of a Christmas carol, um, the, the other, the other people in the scene, the extras who were playing the congregation, they, they were mouthing the words to this carol. Oh. They, they weren't allowed to sing as such. <laughs> wow. Um, well, that, so, yeah, that's it, great. It was, it was quite restricted in certain respects. Yeah. Um, but nonetheless, we, we managed to do it. And I don't think anybody got COVID either. <laughs> See, there, that's, it was a blessing. It was a blessed effort, I guess. So that's, that, that's wonderful. And, and why, why um, was this movie made? Like who, or, or not who, but um, you know, why now, I guess, what's the, um, what brought it about? Yeah, you well, know? I'm, you know, I mentioned that Norman Stone is the director, but the, the real um, motive force behind it is um, the actor, Max McLean, because Max McLean has been starring in a in a one man show um, off Broadway and, and elsewhere around America for for some years now uh, in this most reluctant convert drama. It's it's a 
it's a production of the of the fellowship for performing arts um and so after the success on stage max thought it would be about time to turn it into a movie and um so between him and norman stone it, it, that's how it's come about um why now particularly i don't know um you know these Just things the right are, time right yeah. funding yeah exactly yeah yeah that's that's great and um it, so so the material from the movie comes from comes from this play do you know um is that is does that does that material come from cs lewis's writings or or where do we where do we get this story from yeah almost the whole of the screenplay in the movie I don't know about this the the play script on stage. I've I've not actually seen the theatre version, um, but the, the screenplay is dry is derived almost entirely from Lewis's own words, uh, and in particular from his autobiography, "Surprised by Joy." Um, so it's 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 very close up to the to Lewis's own take on his own story, mm-hmm. uh, and so it feels very authentic it's it's unabashedly <clears throat> it's unabashedly theological and spiritual um you know there's no dodging of the of the question of of christianity i mean that's the whole story the, the right. most reluctant convert is about yeah. how lewis comes to believe in god and then believe in in the christian god um, <laughs> spoiler so alert the, guys yeah <laughs> he's a convert <laughs> <laughs> right but i that's one of the reasons i like it because Unlike the recent biopic about Tolkien that was made, um, which really skirted his his Christianity, um, there's no skirting involved here. On the contrary, they're plunging right into it, and it's all the better for that. I think. Yeah, absolutely. Well, yeah, that, it's interesting. I I um, remember listening. I think it was uh, I think it was Jerry Root actually um, who talked about the book "Surprised by Joy" and, and how some people, I believe. Get, um, uh, criticize it because it's it's not the full autobiography. It's not a memoir. It's not you know. It's not this. It's not that. And and his argument is that that wasn't the point. The point of surprise by joy was was you know to tell a story about a conversion and about his relationship you know with that process. I guess. Yeah, absolutely. Um, surprise by joy is subtitled "The Shape of My Early Life." And it stops as soon as Lewis has become a Christian, um, which is only, you know, about halfway through Lewis's life. Um, so everything that he went on to do after he'd become a Christian is left out of that book. Uh, and so if you want, you know, a standard autobiography, a, a reflection upon someone's entire life or most of their life, uh, you don't get it. That, that's not the purpose of the book. And that's not the purpose of the movie either. Right. Um, it's it's very narrowly focused on this one particular story. Uh, there are no subplots as such. Um, it's a very simple account, really. Um, but although it's narrowly focused, it goes deep. And, and that's one of the things I liked about it. That's, yeah, that's, that's a... I, I enjoy movies like that that can, can really focus in and, and really think about what is the, you know, what are, what are we what's and 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 we can get into this a little bit you know the and uh but you know it doesn't have to be overtly you know hit you over the head but it's a story that's telling that's telling a specific point of view and is telling you know making a point of of how um 
you know, what, what has happened to, to C.S. Lewis, uh, which takes me again, the, the most reluctant convert. I mean, it's such a, a great title. Um, and that is, those are Lewis's words, right? He, he can, he called himself the most reluctant convert. That's right. Yeah. That is a phrase from surprised by joy. Um, it relates actually to his, his conversion to theism, not to Christianity, that particular phrase. Mm. Um, and so it's now doing double duty uh, to cover his Christian conversion as well. But yeah, he, he said that when he came to a belief in God, that he was, as it were, brought kicking and struggling in, into that belief, um, his eyes darting in every possible, every possible direction for a point of escape. He, he was that night, he said, the most dejected and reluctant convert in all England. Um, yeah, and there's a book Man, of the can... same title, actually, by David Downing. Uh, David Downing has, has written a book about Lewis's conversion with that same title. That, that, and, and I love that, that, uh, imagery of, of, you know, eyes darting around trying to find any way of escape because that is, um, you know, I think how a lot of people feel, you know, I know I felt that way. Like I, the, the last thing I want to do is God's will, right? <laughs> it, it's so natural for me to, to, to not do it. And, and, and to finally, you know, at some point to, to have no other way, but to do it, it's, it's, it's a, um, it's, it's quite an experience and I can relate to, to that sort of uh, those sort of images that that he says. Yeah. And I think because Lewis writes about his own story in that very honest way, and because this movie reflects that honesty um, there, there there can be little sense that, uh, you know, non-Christian viewers are being got at, Um, Mm. you know, they're not being told Christianity is is right. Christianity is easy. Everybody should become a Christian. Uh, it's not like that. It's it's just one man's story, and his his great reluctance to become a Christian, um, you know. And so, quite a lot of the script, particularly early on, is is devoted to explaining why Lewis wasn't a Christian, um, and you know th- those reasons are not skirted r- round. They're they're not glossed over. Um, yeah. So, you know, you see a genuine tussle going on in Lewis's own heart and mind. And that's what gives the story its drama. So so you mentioned that that you've you've seen obviously you've seen the movie uh, for those of us um, that are anticipating it. Um, you know, what what was your take? Did you enjoy it? What what should we expect? And and uh, yeah, how how did you how did you what was it like to watch it the first time? Yeah, I've seen it twice now, actually. Um, it was screened online to cast and crew uh, back in April, I think it was. Um, and we had a, a little sort of chat, all the all the cast and crew, after we'd watched it. We, we all, it was all online. It was by Zoom. So we, we were encouraged to bring our own glasses of wine and toast the movie um, on Zoom, which we did. And that was all good fun. Um, and then I saw it again, this time in in the uh, auditorium of Magdalen College, Oxford, uh, where much of it was filmed. Uh, they've got a little theatre which serves as a, a cinema. And so I saw it there with a small group of people um, in, I think, June or July. Um, so I've now seen it twice, once on my laptop and once on a proper screen. And um, I liked it even more the second time. And, you know, I liked it well enough the first time. Yeah. But of course, the first time you're just, as it were, 
you know, seeing whether it hangs together and following the story and so on and so forth. And second time round, you're able to pay a little bit more close attention to how it is put together and, and whether it really works. And um, I think it does work. It's it's a successful piece of, of storytelling. Um, the two things that struck me watching it were 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 both connected with with the actors, the adult actors playing C.S. Lewis, because there are two men playing the older Lewis. Um, Max McLean, as I've mentioned, uh, plays the older. Lewis, uh, and much of the story is told directly from him to camera. Um, and in some scenes, you see not only Max McLean, but his younger self in the same shot. Um, so the older Lewis is reflecting upon his younger self and watching his younger self take these various steps um, and have these various experiences. And the younger Lewis, the young man, is played by Nicholas Ralph who's recently shot to stardom as uh, as the vet James Herriot in the TV drama All Creatures Great and Small, which has had great success in England and I think has been screened in America too on PBS. Yes, I, I've I've heard I've heard of it, so it's it's been here at least and and yeah. Yeah, and it's very good. I would encourage everybody to watch All Creatures Great and Small on PBS. I think it's part of the Masterpiece Theatre. Um and Nicholas Ralph hadn't yet become famous for that role when he was he was hired to play C.S. Lewis, um, which was very good timing because as soon as he became famous, of course, he, he must undoubtedly have become much more expensive. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> um, and anyway, the, I went on set. The well, I say it was filmed on location. It wasn't a set, but I went on. Lo- you know, I went into the church where I was filming my scenes, and I, I saw this young man sitting in the back pew. And I went up to him and said, "You must be C.S. Lewis," because he <laughs> was such a good physical likeness for the young Lewis. And and Nicholas Ralph said, "Indeed, I am." <laughs> <laughs> um, and so it was very weird. Uh, at one point in the in the filming in that church that I, I was there sat sat in the vicar's stool playing the parish priest and I was looking out on the on a Christmas scene, a Christmas congregation, and there in the front pew was this young man looking very like a young C.S. Lewis, and there in the back pew was Max McLean looking very like the older C.S. Lewis, both very well cast physically. And um I got slight got something close to a kind of you know, shiver down the spine um, in a good way. I mean, it, it yeah. wasn't nothing horrible about it. It was just um, almost uncanny that here we were in the real church where Lewis really worshipped and his body is resting in the churchyard just outside. Um, and it was it was quite a wow, moment, you, I must say. Kind of re- recreating the events that, that, you know, brought him to, to his conversion and brought, brought him to Christianity. What a that would be that would be quite a quite a shiver, as you say. That would be one, yeah, 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 yeah. And I had the role as uh, as parish priest in this Christmas Day scene of giving C.S. Lewis uh, communion, and um, and that's sort of though this is a bit of a spoiler alert, um, so you might want to close your ears for a moment. Um, that, and that that moment of his receiving communion on Christmas Day is is the climax of the movie. Okay. Um, and so it was, you know, it's again quite an honour, as it were, to um, to have that role 
at that particular crucial moment. Absolutely. Wow. Wow. Well, that that's something to look forward to. Absolutely fab- fabulous. What? Um, so the, I, so kind of obviously to get away from the movie per se and, and talk a little bit about C.S. Lewis's uh, life and and um, kind of the what we're going to be seeing in this movie. Um, what? Um, tell us, tell us a little bit about his early, just quickly, like, was he brought up Anglican? Like how, how was he brought up and, and what were some events or what were the things that, that turned him away from, um, his, his, his Christianity? If, if he, if that's how he was raised. Yeah, he was raised as a Christian. He was born into a Christian family. Um, he was born in Belfast and, his grandfather was uh, was the vicar of of the church where he attended as a as a boy, and indeed his grandfather baptized him as an infant in in that church, St Mark's in Belfast. Um, so he was born into this Anglican family and taught all the usual things he said, and taught to say his prayers and read the Bible and so on and so forth. Um, but when he was about 12 or or thereabouts he he went away to school in England and around that time he abandoned his childhood faith um with a with a great sense of relief he said hmm. um his mother had died by that stage his his mother died when lewis was about 10 um and that of course was a you know catastrophic blow for the young child but um but he he doesn't go into any great details about why he he abandoned his faith um one of the things he explains about why it was a relief to give it up was that his prayer life had become a great burden to him and Mm -hmm. every night when he was saying his prayers at night he he felt that he could only um end his prayers if he had said them with sufficient earnestness uh, you know, every clause of his prayers had to be accompanied by what he called a realization, you know, an intense kind of visualization of, of whatever it was that he was asking for or praying about. And so this whole process of, of saying his prayers at night so intensely um, was a great, you know, a great burden to him. And, and so that and giving up, giving up on that um, right. as a result of giving up on his faith in general um, was a great relief. That that so, is interesting. Yeah. yeah. So, so for some years he called himself an atheist, um, and it was in his late twenties that he came back to a belief in God. So he called himself a theist for a while, um, and then in the early nineteen thirties he became a Christian, or okay. you might say he reverted to being a Christian. Um, right. Because he, you know, he how, had been raised as a Christian. He had been baptized, and um, so it's 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 in a way you could, it'd probably be more accurate to talk about the most reluctant revert than the most reluctant convert. <laughs> right. <laughs> that that's that's great. What um so how how long? I mean, if if he was in his twenty, I, I don't know um his life well enough. Um, how many years would he have, have thought of himself as a theist before he actually, uh, you know, reacquainted, re, you know, reverted to, mm. <laughs> to Christianity? 
Uh, well, it was probably only about a year or so. Okay. Um, interestingly, he he seems to have misremembered the date of his own conversion to theism. In Surprise by Joy, he dates it to 1929. Um, but Alistair McGrath, in his recent biography of Lewis, um, argues very persuasively that he, he actually misremembered it and that he became a theist in 1930. Okay. Um, and then a Christian in 1931. So it was only about a year or so that he was a theist as such. Which, which you know, that, that you know, once you, once you make that kind of, uh, you know, make that leap, um, it doesn't go too much further, if you, especially if you have a background in, in Christianity mm. um, to do that, I, I would think. What, um, you know, he, he lived at a really unique time. The, you know, the Great War took place. Um, uh, you know, lot, lots of turmoil in the world. What, what, and, and I, he served in world war one. What, um, what role did world war one have in his theological thinking? Well, I think it confirmed his, his general pessimism. Um, and of course he, he saw a lot of suffering. He saw men die. He was very nearly killed himself. He served only for about six months in the in the trenches of France, and even then, some of the time was spent in hospital, not on the front line, because he he went down with trench fever and was hospitalised for a bit. Um, but then a shell fell in his trench in the spring of nineteen eighteen and obliterated, just annihilated the man standing next to him, his sergeant, Sergeant Ayres, and Lewis. Um, felt that he was probably dead himself. He he kind of had an out-of-body experience and the, the thought occurred to him, here is a picture of a man dying. Um, you know, he thought he was dead or was dying um, and did indeed, you know, come very, very close to being killed and he was spattered full of shrapnel, bits of which he carried around in his body for decades afterwards. Um but of course he survived. He was invalided back to England and he spent about another six months or so recovering from his war wounds. Hmm. Um, and the first book that he ever published was a book of poetry, Spirits in Bondage, it's called, A Cycle of Lyrics. And that came out the year after the war ended, 1919. And in that book, Lewis talks very uh, angrily about God or or God as as he supposes God to be for the purposes of those poems um, and how much the war caused his anger against God and and how much it just intensified an existing anger and disbelief uh, is not clear to me mm-hmm. um you know, it's just enough, to, I think, to say that from about the age of 12 to about the age of 29, 30, um, Lewis was, officially speaking, at any rate, you know, by his own reckoning, by his own self-description, um, an atheist. And and was he, in, would you think of him as an atheist in maybe the um, Richard Dawkins sense from a standpoint of like very antagonistic very, you know, uh, you know, thinking that religious people were stupid and and superstitious and all that, or or was he more of a, uh, you know, you know, this is just my way, you know, I, I, I'm just not a believer. 
Um, what kind of a, a atheist do you think he was? Um, there are one or two letters that he wrote, uh, particularly in his teens, uh, when he, he strikes a rather disdainful attitude towards the faith. Um, but on the whole, he, you know, he was, he was too intelligent, uh, Mm. and too respectful of, of Christians that he knew, um, to, to be quite that antagonistic, um, and of course, you know, one of the one of the things that eventually brought him back to the faith was was his love of Christian literature, Christian authors like um, you know George Herbert and and G.K. Chesterton and and others. He he said, you know, everywhere I looked, there was I was surrounded by Christian authors, <laughs> um, and th- those authors I read who weren't Christian seemed to be relatively tinny. To, to have a kind of thinness and insubstantiality to them, whereas the Christian authors had much more of the texture of and the complexity of real life to them. Um, and, and so he was recognizing that. At a, right, a, that's really interesting. Even before he began to, you know, believe it again philosophically and theologically. Wow, that I, I find that really fascinating that, that he was able to, to perceive that and see, see that kind of thing. Cause I think a, a lot of people, especially if you're an intellectual, um, you know, uh, atheist, um, this, and maybe this is part of our modern kind of atheism that, that we see, but, but it, 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 the, the talk is always around, you know, how, you know, if you're, if you're an intellectual or if you're a, a scientist, then, then of course you're an atheist and, and, and only the smart people and the elite are atheists and, and the, you know, the, the plebs are the, you know, those superstitious religious people, you know, but, but my experience, you know, you know, I am a believer, but, but my experience has always been, you know, that, that it, it's, it's kind of a, um, I don't know, a, a fault, like if 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 you take God out of science, it's um it's not pseudoscience, but it, but but there's a there's a there's a part of it that's missing. There's a depth to it that's missing. That 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 t- tinny is a great word to describe it. It really does not. It doesn't embody the the entirety of of human life and and what we are as as human beings. Yeah, absolutely. And I must say that you know people like Richard Dawkins have have given atheism a bad name because <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> um, Richard Dawkins, God bless him, um, takes a, such such a, uh, an unintelligent approach to Christianity. He takes the very worst examples of, of Christianity or just religiosity in general um, and, and uses that as a as a kind of straw man um, to attack, and anyone can defeat a straw man, and anyone can look down their nose at a straw man. But um, what he really needs to do is take is to take the the, the best examples of, of Christianity, the the, the most in sophisticated thinkers, and you don't see Richard Dawkins uh, tackling, uh, you know, Saint Augustine or Thomas Aquinas or, or any of these great Christian figures. Um, so, you might realize those questions have already been answered centuries before. Well, exactly. Yeah. Uh, you know, there are, there are much better ways of being an atheist than being a Richard Dawkins kind of atheist. Right. Very, very true. Very true. What, um, so, so let's talk about his, his change of heart. You, you mentioned that he, 
um, that that some of these writers, his his scholarly work, his his reading, kind of moved him. Um, you know, uh, I, I guess softened his heart um, in a way. What what other things um, helped him move away from antagonistic atheism into more a um, you know a theist? Yeah, well, that is quite a, a detailed story. Um, and for the, for, the, for the full account, I would advise your listeners to go to Surprise by Joy. Um, there, are, there are lots of things that play into it, but I think um, one, of, one of the main ones is that um, just philosophically, Lewis felt that he, he couldn't hold on to the the objectivity of value um without in in a in a purely materialistic um framework so in other words there was a there is an objective truth and that objectivism has to come from somewhere like 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 you you can't have um you can't have value without having a standard to, to measure that value by is that that what you mean by that well yeah he he wanted to hold on to the objectivity of value. Um, he thought that if 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 he gave that up, he would have to um, resort to to a kind of either a behaviorism or a solipsism in which you know there was no point in talking to anybody about anything because um, you know how how can we have any kind of intelligent discourse with one another unless we are referring to the same objective reality which is outside your head and my head um so he wanted to retain objective value at a purely philosophical level and um having made that step um he he soon realized that it was a very small step towards theism um and having accepted theism, it was a relatively small step to Christianity. Um, but, the, but the main step, really, is this question of objective value. And that's why um, one of his most important books is The Abolition of Man, which you and I talked about last time I was on this show. Um, you know, Lewis had come to a belief in the objectivity of value before he had become a, a theist or a Christian. And that's one of the reasons why he he spends so much time trying to persuade other people of the objectivity of value and, yeah. and of, of the of the falsity of subjectivism. He sees it as a as a good kind of pre-evangelistic uh, step to take. Um, and that's why you know in mere Christianity he opens his argument um, with a with a very kind of popular version of the argument uh, in the abolition of man. Um, so I think that's the one that's the, of the many things that played into the whole picture. I think that's right. probably the most important that he he first of all became an idealist, then a theist, then a Christian. That's that. Wow, that I I like that that um, sequence because I I think often um, and I, and I'm trying to relate this a little bit to you know um, our roles in evangelism, our roles in you know like what you know, what are people thinking when, when they don't believe and, and, and how can we help people or, or how can we influence them in a proper way? Right. And I think, um, understanding, um, what, what Lewis went through 
from an intellectual standpoint. Let me put it this way. I think a lot of time in modern, at least in America and in, in modern Christianity, um, it's, it's about, you know, bringing Jesus into your heart. It's a, it's about a, a very emotional and a very, um, uh, um, feeling based, um, operation, which is fine. Like the, I don't think there's anything wrong with that. However, I think it's limited in the, in the scope of at some point you have to deal with the mind. And, and I, I like the approach that, that, you know, um, that Lewis went through that, that sequence of saying, okay, I have to have a foundation, um, in order to attach these feelings and attach these sentiments onto, <laughs> otherwise mm. it, it's kind of hollow. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, Absolutely. No. So, you know, Christianity is often described under the three headings of the, of the three great transcendental values, goodness, truth, and beauty. Yes. And, um, you know, in Christian literature, Lewis saw the beauty of Christianity. Uh, and then in philosophy, he saw the truth of it. Um, as regards the goodness, uh, that, that interestingly features less obviously in, in the account that he gives. Um, and in any case, truth on its own would probably have been sufficient to get him over the line because he was always keen to to insist on the fact that you know we believe christianity is true um it's not that we believe it necessarily to be good for society or you know um essential in preserving western civilization right it's not, it's not because we happen to like it um we just believe it is true uh, and therefore everything else follows from that including the goodness and the beauty you you might contend um and certainly that's i think how how lewis emphasizes or you know how he frames the whole story in surprise by joy yeah well um and, and it, that's just interesting because I, I think about you know how, how all, all things point to christ at some point even the even the dark even the 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 evil in the world at some point it points to Christ because he has taken all that upon himself. And the, the resurrection is that truth that, <clears throat> you know, that, that we can hold on to um, because it, he is the truth. Right. And uh, um, that's, that's very interesting. Let me ask you this. What, when it comes to, um, um, his conversion, and maybe more specifically, his conversion to Christianity from from theism. Um, we, we talked about sometimes, uh, or we've talked about him kind of intellectually, like he read this and he thought this and he believed this and and that. But what were his influences from his friends, his his family, even you know uh, church pastors? Like, how did they influence that process with him? Yeah, again, in, interestingly, with regard to objective value, he, he, he noticed that his friends, even his non-Christian friends, um, believed in objective value. And um, and that was one of the main stepping stones, as I say, uh, back, back to faith. Um, and that's just another example of how, you know, you don't have to be a Christian to believe in the objectivity of value. You don't have to be a theist to believe in the objectivity of value. It helps. <clears throat> you can, right. You can defend the objectivity of value much more successfully, he argues, if you are a theist and a Christian, but it's not essential. So anyway, um, even his non-Christian friends were helping him in that direction. 
And then when he became friends with uh, Christians like uh, Tolkien, for instance, and Neville Coghill and Hugo Dyson and Owen Barfield, um, if, if Barfield can be called a Christian at that stage of his life, um, they helped him in a very significant way, or at least Tolkien and Dyson did. Um, indeed, Lewis attributes the immediate human cause of his conversion to Christianity uh, to Tolkien and Dyson and to a long nighttime conversation that he had with them in the grounds of his college at Oxford, Magdalen College. Um, they walked around this beautiful riverside walk, which is part of the grounds of Magdalen, uh, in, in a lovely evening walk in September 1931. And, and a few weeks afterwards, Lewis had the, uh, the life-changing trip to Whipsnade Zoo when, as he said, he, he uh, set out not believing that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, but when he reached the zoo, he did. Um, and as he reports in a letter around that time, his, his long nighttime conversation with Tolkien and Dyson had a lot to do with this change of heart. Um, now, all that relates to a more imaginative aspect. Uh, we've been talking a lot about truth, but we ought to talk about the imagination too, because um, what Tolkien and Dyson showed Lewis was that Christianity was, was, a true, was the true myth. And Lewis himself had, had, was acknowledging that he loved myths, pagan myths of dying and rising gods. And he mentions those of Boulder and Adonis and Bacchus and the corn gods. Um, stories which Lewis found profound and moving and, and suggestive of, of truths beyond his grasp. He couldn't say in cold prose what these myths meant, but he, he, he thought they were terribly important somehow. Um, whereas with Christianity, um, the story of this particular dying and rising God, um, he, he didn't receive it in any way as a kind of story that spoke to his imagination, but he, he wanted to turn it immediately into a system of thought, into a, you know, a philosophical system of a creedal statement of theological formulations, you might say, <clears throat> In other words, he was he was over intellectualizing it. Yeah. Um, and Tolkien and Dyson said, why, "Why don't you just relax into the story of Christ, and 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 trace the the narrative content of a child being born into the world who is God, and who grows up and suffers and dies and rises again? Um, treat it as a story that you can enter into, and as a drama of character and incident and event." And then you'll be hearing the language of Christianity in the in the proper sense, because this lived language of a real man in a real time in a real place doing real things is is a language more adequate than the language of of um, of creedal formulations and theological abstractions. Absolutely, yeah. Uh, and those theological abstractions are. Uh, worthwhile, you know, Lewis has got nothing against theology per se, but he, he came to realize that he'd been putting the cart before the horse, he'd been letting the tail wag the dog, um, and that he'd been trying to get doctrines out of Christianity before he was accepting Christianity on its own terms. So that was what Tolkien and Dyson showed Lewis in that conversation in Addison's Walk. And um, once he got that thing sorted out, um, 
a great blockage had been cleared in his mind and heart and soul. And so when he travelled to Whipsnade Zoo on that fateful morning, um, he finally was given the gift of faith. That's, that is remarkable. That is really, I love, that's just a wonderful story. Uh, um, what, uh, why did he end up uh, uh, joining the Church of England versus maybe Catholicism? Tolkien was famously a, a Catholic um, and was very influential on him. Um, is there a quick, easy reason why he decided the, the church, that's where his family was or, or what was his thinking there? Yeah, I think the quick reason is that he had been raised an Anglican and Oxford, particularly back then, um, was a very Anglican city. Uh, you know, all the colleges had Anglican chapels yeah, and Anglican chaplains. Um, you know, the university church is an Anglican church. Uh, the, the Church of England is the established religion of of this country. The, the the monarch is the supreme governor of the Church of England. So Anglicanism is the kind of default setting for for most English people, especially most uh, Oxonian educated English people. Um, and so that was the very natural destination for Lewis. Uh, and I don't think he ever seriously considered any alternative. Right. What? Um, so, so just to, to finish up and thank you so much for your time. I, I've, this has been a wonderful conversation. And, and again, you, you're always so generous. Um, as we, as we think about his conversion story, if we were to take, um, uh, you know, his, his, his future apologetics out of it, if we were to take, you know, some of these, these things on the, on the outside, that are very important, but but if we just looked at the story itself and we thought of it as a as a moral or a parable, you know, what do you think some of the lessons, or what do you think Lewis would want to teach us, or or have us know from from knowing his story of his conversion? Well, one thing I think it's worth saying is that he himself, in later years, acknowledged the fact that. God brings people to himself in any number of ways, uh, and each conversion story is unique. Um, so, th- so there's no pattern or template that people should try to conform themselves to. Um, having said that, of course, you know, we, we do look to other people as a way of understanding the world, and if we were to draw any kind of lesson or moral from Lewis's own example, um, I suppose one would be, uh, as we've already touched upon, the the need to seek for the truth um, and to let the truth be your guide, even if that leads you in a way which you might otherwise find, um, you know, unattractive. Because, you know, Lewis had said, Lewis says, doesn't he, repeatedly in the course of Surprise by Joy, that he his great desire in life had been to be left alone, not to be interfered with, um, to be his own master. And he was a very individualistic kind of character. Um, and that was one of the reasons he didn't want to become a Christian, because he saw God as the great interferer. Hmm. Um, and so from that point of view, he you know, he genuinely didn't want to become a Christian. But he felt that he had to if he was going to be intellectually honest. Um, he had to acknowledge that God existed and that God therefore had certain claims upon Lewis's life. Um, so I think that's that's one 
useful moral to to draw from Lewis's yeah. own case, and and another is the fact of of the the narrative quality of his understanding of Christianity, that it's not just about getting your ideas in order. It's not just about intellectual assent to a doctrinal system. It is about entering a story uh, and finding yourself as part of of the great story of of Christ's redemptive act. Um, You know, we are actors at a very small level in this drama ourselves. Um, and so that's another very important feature, I think, of, of Lewis's conversion. That's, yes, very good. Well, again, I want to thank you for your time, everybody. This has been Michael Ward, and and uh, we've been uh, discussing the new movie out, uh, The Most Reluctant Convert, The Untold Story of C.S. Lewis. Um, out, the movie will be out in a theater near you November 3rd. So look it up. Go to cslewismovie.com. Is that the right? Uh, website to go yeah, to? I, I believe so. cslewismovie.com cslewismovie.com You'll see a link there that will uh, you know give you some ideas of, of theaters in your area that are showing the movie. I hope you will go and support this film. I, I am so looking forward to it. Um, anybody who's listening um, you know, hit me up. I, I plan on doing a, a little after show party, um, you know, and if somebody's interested in that, you know, we can send you a link and, and do a Zoom call or something. But I, it, it'd be fun to discuss the movie um, after watching it. Um, thank you, Michael, for being on the show, giving us some insight both on the movie and the, the C.S. Lewis conversion story. I really appreciate it. My pleasure, Mike. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. This has been Mike Levitt, and you've been listening to And If Love Remains.